Good afternoon, church. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 23. And we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 33. You can say amen when you have it. I'm going to go ahead and read God's word for us and then ask that the Lord would bless our time under the preaching of his word. This is the word of the Lord. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Indeed, saints. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, Father, the preacher and all those who come to hear the word need your help. We are weak apart from your power at work in us. We thank you that we have the spirit. Those that are in Christ have him. And he is active now, working in us, so that this word might bear fruit for your glory. Would you give us faith that that is what's happening? Would you give me grace and help to preach boldly? Hide me behind the cross and help your word to be proclaimed and not me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are uh, many, from what I understand, multi-millionaires who are looking forward uh, to life beyond death. And they are confident. Uh, and they are so confident in the continued progress of modern medicine that many of them have arranged for their bodies to be frozen after they have died. And they also, some have set up uh, personal revival trusts, which are designed to ensure that the wealth that they have now will be waiting for them when they have been uh, resuscitated. Uh, however many hundreds of years um, they plan to be unfrozen and brought back to life in the future. There is a real estate millionaire named David Pizer, not Pfizer, Pizer, uh, and he figured that his roughly 
uh, at the time that, that, that uh, the, the article that I, that I learned this from was published, he had about $10 million that he was going to leave to himself in this revival trust. And he figured that after all the compounded interest had been added in, that would make him the richest man in the world whenever it was that he uh, woke up. Now, this is an example of the rich and the powerful making earthly decisions as if the world and all that's in the world is all that there is. And it's the rich and the powerful making decisions with the assumption that they will actually be woken up from their sleep of death into a world that is the same as the one that they left when they died. The reality is that God will wake them up. And all will not be as they left it. The good news is that that's actually something that those in Christ look forward to. The bad and very frightening news is, unless people like David Pizer come to know the Lord Jesus, that's going to be a very frightening day. The decision to freeze bodies and money, assets, is purely worldly. And, and it, it presumes that and assumes that uh, this is all that there is. And that we are in somehow, uh, somehow a control of it. The Sadducees have a worldly, very earthly question that they bring to Jesus. And he gives them a very heavenly answer. And that's actually going to serve as our two points for today. Uh, point number one, an earthly question. And point number two, a heavenly answer. Point number one, an earthly question. Point number two, a heavenly answer. And I, I'm going to do my best to explain what is happening in the text and help to try and apply it to our lives and provide some things to consider as we look at the text. Before we, before we get into the weeds of the question here, um, our text for this afternoon, it's helpful to remember, is coming on the heels of last week's text. And this was the last time we were in Matthew. And this is the second of three attempts by the religious leaders at trying to trap Jesus in his words with a question. Last week, we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they were trying to trap Jesus in a question about God and government. And this attempt to trap Jesus in his words comes from the Sadducees. Matthew tells us a little about the Sadducees and what they believed. And, and he does so because it helps to explain why they asked Jesus the question that they asked. He says the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees were the rich religious aristocrats of the day. They were sort of the administrators of the temple and they paid strict attention to, this is important, the law of Moses. And they only accepted the first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And that, that, that was what they saw as authoritative. And so they rejected uh, both the notions of, of resurrection and everything that was spiritual. Uh, 
uh, these things you see later developed in the Old Testament. And even the Pharisees believed in these, but the Sadducees, they were like the materialists of the day. They were the ones that said, you know, if, I, if whatever's here that I can see is, is kind of what we hold to in the first five books of the law, are all that we need. We see this in Acts 23, verse 8. Uh, the writer of Acts writes, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So these are even different than the Pharisees. They do not believe in anything uh, in regards to resurrection or angels or spirits. This is the same group that John the Baptist calls, along with the Pharisees, a brood of vipers. And he says to them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and he's exposing their hearts there. And we'll see Jesus get at their hearts in a moment. But for now, just, just important for us to know that the Pharisees are religious leaders who acknowledge the first five books of the law. They do not believe in a resurrection. They do not believe in the spiritual. And they are trying to trap Jesus with a theological question. Everybody with me? But Matthew tells us that this is happening the very same day as Jesus encountered with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Let's look at the question that the Sadducees ask. They say in verses 24 through 28, Teacher Moses said, so they're using Moses now, and, and, and we can even take that to me. When they say Moses said, they're, they're referring to those first five books, right? If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The second did the same, so also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. All of them had her. Now this question by the Sadducees is blending two Old Testament practices found in Deuteronomy 25, uh, 5 through 10. We're not, you don't have to turn there now. You can do that later if you like. And Genesis 38, 8 through 9. Both of them are connected to the custom of Leverite or Leverite marriage. So the, the, this is a custom and a law that is given specifically in Deuteronomy, but the custom is referenced in Genesis, which is written before Deuteronomy. So the practice actually predates when it was instituted uh, in the law in, in, in the law, okay, in 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 um, in Exodus, and it was practiced in other ancient cultures, uh, not just the Hebrew culture. This was a law that said if a man died without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Deuteronomy 25.5, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed uh, to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so this law seems to have Three main purposes. The first is that it provided security for the widow during her bereavement. And it also protected her from the shame that comes with being barren. The second thing is that it prevented the loss of the deceased brother's property okay, to a larger family uh, or, 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 or clan. And the third thing that it did was that it ensured that the dead man's name would be preserved and the family line would continue. And so there's an emphasis here on continuing the name of that family. 
there's, there's really only two instances in the Old Testament where we see this. The one is in Genesis, and it's actually not followed through on. The other we see as a, as a, a theme in the book of Ruth. It's actually the most wonderful application of this custom and this law when Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer. Okay, and, and it's actually what the story's hinged on. The joy of the story is hinged on, hinged on this idea. Naomi comes in uh, to Bethlehem and she says, I'm barren. God has forsaken me. Call me Mara. He's left me. And, and they are without hope. And then here comes this kinsman redeemer. But the, but the Sadducees have taken two Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy and in Genesis, and they've blended them with Old Testament principles to create this improbable case study okay, of this really unfortunate woman who's been married and widowed seven times with no kids. Some commentators, I thought this was really interesting, think that this story that they're telling is borrowed from a well-known Jewish folktale, which when I read it, sounds very similar to what's uh, being asked here, the context for the, the little story that they're trying to, to frame. Here's why they think their question is a trap for Jesus. Here's why they think they have him. They assume that the future is going to be just like the life that we live right now. So like everything else just kind of carries over. And if it is the same, this woman who has been married seven times would have to have seven husbands in heaven, which is not only absurd, it's polygamy. And they are trying to make the idea of the resurrection look completely ridiculous. The resurrection is, 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 is they're trying to make it look dumb. They're trying to come to Jesus and say, you believe in this? This is ridiculous. It's dumb. And so are you, Jesus. And so this is not a genuine theological question that they're asking. They've come to try to make Jesus look silly by attempting to make their way look superior. And it's built on their disbelief of a bodily resurrection in all things spiritual. In other words, the question comes from a group of people who believe solely in what they can see and what they can reasonably understand and what they can defend with their brand of logic. It is a purely earthly question that comes from a purely earthly heart, a worldly heart. That's, that's, and the question is built on a lie. And Jesus gets right at this in verse 30. It's interesting that he could just begin, or I'm sorry, in verse 29. He could just begin answering the question in verse 30, right? So verse 30 says, for in the resurrection, so they're asking about resur the resurrection. He could just start there and go, okay, we're talking about resurrection. This is what happens in the resurrection. Let me correct you. But he doesn't do that. In verse 29, he says, you are wrong. What that actually means, what that actually means is you've been misled or you've been deceived or you've gone astray. You've wandered off into some foreign doctrine here. And so Jesus, when he says, verse 29, you are wrong, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What he's saying is that your question is based on a lie. And if the basis of your question is a lie, then that can only lead to a lie. It's like someone is, so what I imagine was someone standing with you on a pier, OK, 
okay? You're watching ships leave the harbor and they're going out towards the horizon and the person leans over to you and goes, I mean, what do you think happens when those ships just fall right off the edge of the earth? You see them? Isn't that crazy? They're just going at the horizon and we can't see them. They just drop right off the planet. Where do you think they go? And you go, well, you're wrong. But like, you're all wrong. The question that you're asking is based on this belief that the earth is flat. And then if you keep going, you're going to fall off the edge. It's based on a, it's based on a lie. You were all together wrong. We need to start over. You need to relearn. And Jesus is saying, you've strayed from the right path. And this is the place that you're asking this question from. And so the reasoning is, what's interesting is that the reasoning is based on Scripture. But the conclusion that they come to is actually not biblical at all. It's all wrong. I mean, who does this? Who does this? This is what Satan does, right? He tries to use the Bible to get, he tried to do, he did it with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? And he mixed it and he twisted it. And so he used God's words and to arrive at a conclusion that was not godly at all. He tried to do it with Jesus in the desert. He used God's words. To, to try to get Jesus to come to a conclusion that was not godly at all. And Jesus, our great high priest and suffering servant and perfect God-man, uses the word of God rightly. But this is what Satan does. He even does it with us. I mean, he said he's going to punish sin. And you just sin. And so I'm, you, you should assume he's going to punish you too. I know you're in Jesus, but that, that can't really mean much. He's using truth. They're using truth. And they're twisting it, which is just a quick reminder for us saints to know your Bibles. To know your Bibles. So, so we are not beyond the error of the Sadducees here. I mean, we only need what's happening in our own hearts to prove we are not beyond the error of the Sadducees. We believe lies about our standing in union with Christ. When the Bible tells us otherwise that he will never leave us or forsake us, we believe lies about sin, that it, does not, that it, it doesn't lead to death, that it won't do the damage that it, 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 that the Bible promises that it will do to our souls. And so we need to be mindful here to not be like the Pharisee or the Sadducees. We are not beyond our pride obscuring what God has told us. The problem is the Sadducees have been bewitched. As Paul tells the Galatians, the Sadducees are wrong in their thinking and their biblical understanding of what's exactly happening uh, with the resurrection and it's corrupted their question and it's corrupted them and they've waded into waters that they really don't have any power to swim in because they're talking to Jesus now they think they they think they know what they're doing but they don't know what they're doing or who they're talking to this is so I thought of this maybe you've been this person or you've seen this person this is the person who read something about, let's just be general here, they read something about science, okay? And they read it online. 
and they they go they read this page about uh, the, the 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 geology, right? And I'm gonna go to this part and I'm gonna flex and I'm gonna show everybody what I know about geology. And then at the party, they meet an actual scientist who's an expert in this. He goes, what are you talking about? We're talking about rocks and formations. And, and they don't know who he is. And he goes, oh, that reminds me of, no, I'm not, I don't know anything. I don't even know the terms to use. But he asked them a question that lets them know, oh, he actually knows what he's talking about. And I'm only pretending to know what I'm talking about. See, in their pride and in their misinformation, they are arrogantly trying to make someone look foolish. And their very public question is meant to shame Jesus in public by making him look like he's a theological lightweight. You understand? That's what they're trying to do. This is their attempt, their twisted attempt at shaming Jesus. Now, we know the devil's greatest attempt at shaming Jesus would come later, and he would overcome that too. But for now, Jesus humbly answers their question. He says, his charge is, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he's going to unpack these charges in reverse order now. So he's going to show them that they don't know the power of God. And then he's going to show them how they don't know the scriptures. He does this by giving them a heavenly answer. Which is our second point. A heavenly answer. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is the first part of his heavenly answer. And the problem with the Sadducees is not only did they, did, they, did they believe that the next life would be like this current life, they also assume that if a resurrection does exist, which they don't believe that it does, then God is going to bring people back into an existence that is just like this existence. And so certainly their belief comes from ignorance. But Jesus knows that this assumption is also attached to a false belief that God is bound by the limitations of the current world that we live in. And that he is bound by our understanding of the, of the, of the limitations of the world that we live in. So in other words, he sees that what the Sadducees are really saying, excuse me, is what it's like now, is what it will be like then. It doesn't get any better than this because God can't do any better than this. So they don't understand what it is or who it is that makes this life without end, okay? That, that makes life without end what makes eternity a reality. They don't understand that God. And so they don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God. You think that God can only do this. You don't know the power of God to redeem relationships. What, what, what do I mean? Well, the Sadducees ask Jesus a question about marriage. Assuming that there will be marriage in the next life, just like this life. But Jesus says, no. 
they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. He doesn't say that, that we will be angels. Okay? He, say, he says we will be like angels in heaven. Now the Sadducees don't even believe in angels. So maybe just Jesus just kind of throws that in there just to kind of, you know, just like they're real too. I know you don't believe it, but they're real. But what he's saying is angels are not married. That's why he brings up angels. They are not married. There's really nothing in Scripture that ever hints at angels being married. That's not their purpose. And so they don't have that kind of relationship now. They will not have it then. They won't have it ever. And when all those who are in Christ are in heaven, the institution of marriage will no longer be needed. You see, the Sadducees are trying to use temporary institutions to bind eternal realities. And Jesus is essentially saying that institution won't be needed in heaven. God's going to change the nature of the kind of relationships that we have completely. It's not going to be needed. Why do I use the word needed? Well, what is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. It's a pointer to the union that Christ has with his church. And so what the institution of marriage points to now will be a perfect reality in heaven. So there'll be no need for any more pointers. So what's the gospel like? You can look at my marriage. You can look at their marriage. We won't ask that question in heaven anymore. We won't need to point. There'll be no need for pointers. It, it won't even be appropriate to speak about another believer as being uniquely married to anyone else but Jesus. It's because we'll all be pointing at him. Because we'll be with him perfectly. And so there'll be no need for billions and billions of brides and bridegrooms walking the planet. Because there's going to be one bridegroom with one bride. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Not only is marriage a pointer, it's an answer to earthly loneliness. So not only is marriage a pointer to the gospel, but it's an answer to loneliness. How do we know this? Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. But in heaven, all relational needs will be supplied. There, there will be no more loneliness. There's not going to be any more loneliness. Not only that, but, but all of even our most wonderful relationships, saints, with our spouse, with our friends, the ones we've wept with, the ones we sang with, the ones, the ones that know the most about us, the most dear relationships that we have. All of those dope relationships are still impacted by sin. We can feel it in ourselves. 
We could see it leak into our marriages and, and our most treasured friendships. It, it's always there. So in a way, we don't even know each other the way that we ought to really know each other. We can even experience the kind of relationships, even in our marriages, that we ought to experience. Because sin is always present. It's like we... It's like you're watching this crystal clear picture on a TV and there's a glob of guacamole in the corner, right? You go, I, can you see it? I can see him clearly, but that's so distracting. It's in the way of even how we see each other. But, but we in heaven will know each other as we ought to. Perfectly in heaven. Our friendships will be perfect. In heaven, there will be no more sin to mess up our relationships. And you will never, ever, ever feel loneliness ever again because you'll never be alone. I mean, this is what happened to Christ on the cross, isn't it? He was the son forsaken by the father. He was left alone to bear the weight of our sin. He was, he was, he, the father turned his face. He was the most lonely ever. So that all who come to him and lay their sins at the cross and seek forgiveness could be covered in his righteousness and who could be brought to heaven by the power of the resurrection so that there, where there's no more sin, death, decay, broken friendships, no more backbiting, no more lying, no more loneliness. Jesus bought that with his blood. So the intimacy, the trust and friendships that are uniquely displayed in, in, in marriage and present and even the best friendships will be perfectly present in heaven. I do think that in our resurrected bodies, we will know each other. We don't know what will be. We, we won't be like this. The Bible says we'll be just like Jesus, but Peter, James, and John knew Moses and Elijah in their resurrected form on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so all human interaction will, will, be, will be perfect and, and different than it is now, and we will know each other. It will be perfectly loving. It will be perfectly rewarding. Just a word to those that are married. This is a word to myself. Our marriage is preparation for glory. It's preparation for glory. I, I can remember um, uh, playing uh, football in high school, and we would walk. We would do these walkthroughs uh, the day of the game, the same day, uh, right before the game started. And in in the walkthroughs, we would wear helmets and we would wear uh, leg pads, but no shoulder pads, and we would run plays at like seventy five percent of the intensity that they would normally be run in the game. There'd be lots of jogging, there was no hitting, there was no tackling, so there was no crashing of helmets, there was no crunching of the pads, there was no spit bubbles, there was no sweat, there was no uh, grunting or yelling or anything like that. But when the game came, when, when, the, when it was time to play the actual game, it was full on 100%, right? So, so you were fully present, 
your emotions were running on high and the, the level of intensity was cranked up. Adrenaline was pumping so that you didn't, the hits didn't feel the same as they normally would. And you didn't feel the same kind of pain. And everything we practiced in walkthroughs was real this time. It was real. And, and married brothers and sisters, we are, we're in walkthroughs right now for, for glory. When, when, when we will fully present with perfect emotion, with perfect intensity, with perfect bodies moving in perfect and full expressions of worship to the Lord, we will be with our bridegroom in heaven perfectly. This is why Paul gives the charge to husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And listen to the charge to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Marriages are walkthroughs for glory. And so we, we ought to fight and strive against the temptation and sin that clings so closely so that our relationships look as much like glory now as they can. And so don't settle and don't and know your Bibles so that you're not led astray into all sorts of weird, strange teachings. Preach to each other, encourage each other, pray for each other, preach the gospel to each other. You're getting each other ready for glory. Single brothers and sisters. If you are discouraged, and if you are downcast, and if you are still waiting for that husband or that wife, the resurrection is evidence that God sees you. He sees you. And yes, mar like marriage is dope, but it is not the ultimate relationship. It is not the ultimate. First Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's for everybody in Jesus. And so while you wait, and we, we wait and we pray with you to provide, the, to give you the desires of your heart. But you do not have to pray that God would provide you with a heaven and a perfect union with him where loneliness will be banished. You don't have to pray that he would do that. He's promised that he will do it. He's going to do it. You belong to him. You belong to him. And so take joy that you have a perfect bridegroom. You have a perfect savior. You have a perfect friend who sticks closer than a brother and who loves you perfectly, and who will never forsake you, and never leave you, and he will call you to himself. You don't have to ask him to do that. He will do it. 
See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, beloved. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And that's the promise if you are in Christ, whether you are single or whether you are married. You see, Jesus, in his answer to the Sadducees, is pointing to a day when all relationship will be perfected. Jesus is pointing to the power of God. And the fact that God is able to establish relationships of even deeper friendship, joy, and love in the life to come. The Sadducees are interested in marriage as a way of raising up descendants for a man who died to carry on his name. Jesus is pointing to the fact that this limits the power of God if that's all you think that this is what this is. They actually don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God to create a much more wonderful world and much more wonderful relationships than any of us could ever imagine. Christ draws their attention to the fact that God can raise up people by way of the resurrection. God's power is so great that he can recreate relationships and life. Life which is what Jesus gets at in the second half of his answer. Look at Matthew 22, 31 and 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, the rest of the Old Testament, it's just so dope what Jesus is doing here. So the rest of the Old Testament clearly teaches that there is bodily resurrection. So just give you three passages, right? One is from Daniel, one is from Isaiah, and the other one is from Job. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who in sleep in the who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then Job, in Job 19, says, uh, Job 19, 25 and 26 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at, at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. So here we see Job testify. I'm going to get a new body. I will see God. I will be resurrected. But the passages that I just read to you, the Sadducees paid no attention to. So remember, they only read the first five books of the law. So that's exactly what Jesus is going to use to point to the power of God in the bodily resurrection. He says, have you not read? And the answer to that is, of course they've read. Of course they've read it. What does he cite? He cites Exodus 3, 6. I mean, this is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's one of the, it's the second book of the Pentateuch. It's like everybody knows it. So when he goes, didn't you read this? Like, yeah, they, of course they read it. Exodus 3, 6. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so Jesus uses a passage 
from the book that the Sadducees exclusively adhere to. They only read this book. And the context of the passage is Moses, the man that they refer to in their question, and it's at the burning bush, an event that everybody knows about. And so he supports the idea of the resurrection using the Torah, the book of the, that the Sadducees say, this is the only book that we believe in. So even the book that they say they understand, they don't even really understand. So this is a rebuke. Jesus knows they've read it, but they've ignored it. Not only have they ignored it, they've ignored its author. Look what he says. This was said to you by God. And so they've ignored God, which is why he says, you don't know God. These prideful Pharisees have just questioned the greatest theologian and the one whom all true theology is about and comes from and is for. And if they want to argue doctrine with the Torah, right? Jesus is, okay, you want to do that? Like, you want to argue resurrection from the Torah? Let's, Let's open the Torah. And he uses a passage where the Lord speaks to Moses in the present tense about men who are dead as still being in covenant with him. In other words, they're still alive. So to say that God is not the God of the dead is to say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all men who lived, were married, and died, and are still alive with God, enjoying God, worshiping God in heaven, and will be resurrected in the future. And they are enjoying the blessings of the eternal covenant. They're alive right now. So the Sadducees should recognize God's power to raise the patriarchs from the dead. And all God's people are going to be with him. They should see that. And they don't see it. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am that very same God. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should make, our, should make the covenant bells go off in our heads. These are the names of the covenant patriarchs. They they point to the covenant people of God and and God does not lose his covenant people. He always loves, he always blesses his people so that it's it's inconceivable that, that, that his blessing stops when people die, when his people die. He holds on to them. And he holds on to them so strong and his, 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 his grip on them is so eternally strong that even death can't rip it away. It's so powerful that he, that he pulls them through death and resurrects them. That's what he means when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I pulled them through death. So death does not have the last word over those who belong to the Lord Jesus. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of you. And when you die, he will still be your God and you will be with him. This is the God of resurrection power. He will raise the dead. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So God will raise the dead, all the dead. Those outside of Christ who die in their sin will be raised and, and put on imperishable so they can suffer eternally under his judgment in a second death. That's what Revelation says. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And who does the judging here? First Timothy tells us, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. But, saints, the verse earlier in Revelation, John says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. That's covenant language, heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. All who trusted in the resurrected Christ and are covered in his blood to conquer sin and death, they will be his forever. He will bring them through death to eternal life. This is the power of God. This is resurrection power. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what resurrected Christ. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead, he will give you life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. And say, this is how you were saved. By the resurrection power of God. You were dead in your sins. Dead. Lifeless, felt nothing for God. And this is the power that the Sadducees, they don't know anything about because they don't know God. This is the power that their pride will not allow them to, 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 to come to. They overlook it. But it's gospel power. It's the power that raises dead hearts to life. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Kids. Everyone who's a Christian is a Christian because of the power of God. Because God is powerful. So if your mom and your dad believe in Jesus, they are, they are they're showing you that God is powerful. That he, that he takes hearts that are dead and he wakes them up. And no one can do that but Jesus. And if you are not in Christ, if you've not trusted Jesus, the Bible says that you are still dead in your sin. But God in Christ has, has, has died for you. And he's come. So that if you call out to him for forgiveness, he would empower, wake up your heart. If you want to know more about what it means to believe the gospel, that's the power of God, just ask, who was at home with you, mom or dad? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who resurrects saints. He still resurrects. And he is the God of the living. All who find their life in him in Christ now are all those who will be raised with him to eternal life. 
This is our inheritance. It's a sure inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We read it in our call to worship. This is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Looking at the Sadducees is, is a sad sight, saints. They approach the eternal and heavenly king with a question about earthly matters. The sad thing is that their question points to just how much they actually missed what was most important. Their sin and their pride had kept them in the dark, saints. They were blinded to the world to come. They were blinded to a new and regenerated and resurrected world, a new heaven and a new earth where there, there, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus died and was raised so that we would one day put off what is broken and dying and falling apart and put on immortality saints. So the question is, that I want to leave us with, is why continue to make the same mistake as the Sadducees who believe that this is all there is? They came to Jesus with a question about earth, and he pointed them to eternal life. We come to Jesus, we, we can come to Jesus with our earthly cares and not be like the Sadducees. We can come to Jesus and know that he will answer us with the power of the resurrection and of eternal life that's only found in the gospel. Listen to Richard Sibbs as, as I close here. He says, the life of a Christian is wondrously ruled in this world by the consideration and meditation of the life of another world. May it be true of us. May it be true of us. May the world to come, the life to come, the, 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 the sweet union that we will have with Christ and with one another perfectly uninterrupted, may that be what we meditate on when we're low. May that be what we meditate on when we're lonely. May that be what we meditate on when we, when we feel that there's no hope. May that be what we meditate on when we don't see the change that we desire to see in the world. The, the whole point of this world and the brokenness of the world is to point us to the next one. And the devil would have us and our hearts just so consumed with everything that's down here. And Jesus clearly from this passage is so much better. We're called to something greater. We're, we're called to, to look to Christ. May God give us grace to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help. We need your help to look to you. We ask that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ and that we would help one another 
by reminding us of where our hope is. Would you encourage the lonely? Would you wake up those who are asleep? Would you keep us fixed in our Bibles? We ask that you would do all these things as we look to you, knowing that you are coming soon and that you're with us, even to the end of the age. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.